out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest this week. It's going to be the turn of the Dance Society because I recently spoke to Paul Nash from the band, the guitarist, uh, to find out more about life, love and poetry. This is the interview. If you want to know more about the band, there is a very good website, which is just thedancesociety.com. So go there. But anyway... After several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Paul, it's over to you. My first seven-inch single that I bought was a sweet record, Wigwam Bam. <laughs> that was my first ever record that I bought. Um, yeah, when I was about, ooh, probably about 11 or something, that was a song that resonated with me. And I managed to persuade my, my parents to take me to Woolworths and buy the seven-inch single of uh, Wigwam Bam. But my first so my first sort of proper record that I bought that I really wanted when I was a little bit older was um, Alice Cooper's Billion Dollar Babies. That that album was um, a big turning point. Like, I bought, I bought I'd saved up my uh, dinner money from the week, <laughs> not had any dinner all week, uh, and put that towards the record and bought the album for $4.99 from Casa Disco in Barnsley, and <laughs> brought that home. Uh, and promptly put it onto the my mum and dad's record uh, stereogram and played it and got shouted at by my mother when she heard the track two on side one, which is called Raped and Freezing. Uh, that didn't go down well at all. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Nevertheless, though, I, I loved that record. The whole record is just a piece of genius. Um, and that's probably where I get my love of dark music from. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Some absolutely fabulous tracks on there. And was it and was it seeing him on top of the pops doing schools out that that had a um, also a moment yes. in your life? Uh, absolutely, yes, it was. Yeah, that was that was so different at the time. Uh, watching him do with his sword play in front of the camera and um, yeah, did yeah, yeah that that moment it was just incredible. Yes, yeah, well, I, I always that, remember that, he gets he gets a member of the audience who looks quite innocent and blonde and he has a sort of sword around her neck that's that? right yeah <laughs> yes alice he, did it. Members. <laughs> he, he, came, he came into my life and it's interesting you mentioned sweet because a lot of people mention sweet and they always talk about the b-sides which i have to confess i have no real i don't have the knowledge of sweet in that depth that they you know they go yeah, but no, right there, b-sides. No. yeah so that was a kind of a big one so you mentioned your yeah. parents there being horrified, which is always quite handy, actually, at that age, because you don't want them to say, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, great. You know, that, that at least you've got something to rebel. <laughs> Did they have their own musical kind of interests and, um, yeah, uh, records? Yeah, I mean, um, they weren't massive music lovers. My mum sung in the choir. She, she liked singing, so she sang in the sort of church choirs and things. Uh, my dad was very much into Glenn Miller. Uh, but that was his pretty much his sole musical taste. He had to be sort of a Glenn Miller or pretty much nothing. <laughs> he, he just loved Glenn Miller. So um, we have a lot of Glenn Miller on um, the occasional soundtrack from that period. Um, my mother liked the, the sort of musicals like uh, South Pacific and those types of things, so I vaguely remember. But they didn't use the stereogram that much. And I, I basically, once I sort of got into music, I, was, I took it over. And it was uh, I was the one who who, who used it. Yes, really, than anybody else. Absolutely, I think with the Glenn Miller, though, it's because my dad was just a little boy during the Second World War, so all those kind of records 
of the Andrews sisters and that period and and the big band stuff was always kind of important. And then I remember he was mm. into things like, um, yes, Miss uh, Teresa Brewer and various other people that, um, I don't know, whether that genre, you know, and mm -hmm. um, yes, that was it. And then obviously it was a bit of Elvis and then they got married and, you know, just had to focus on working and um, yeah, not, not having any debt, which was kind of that, yeah. that kind of generation really. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it's very, very typical of that generation. I think. Yeah. There wasn't um, there wasn't a big music scene other than the sort of outside, of, you know, the war swing bands, um, and that sort of scene, like you said, the Andrew Sisters and all that that sort of thing. But that, after that, it seemed the music seemed to either stagnate or didn't really mean that much. Maybe with what had gone on, you know, culturally, uh, that might have been the case. I don't know. And then it sort of obviously, as we came up to the sixties, seventies. Um, sort of resurgence, but with the younger people. Yeah, I guess I guess the older generation sort of got left out a little bit there. Well, I think they, I mean, they were they did used to go to dances and they'd learnt to dance, which was a big thing. Mm. And then they that was where they, as you were talking about music being very ge geographical, it was the same thing with they called dating. You know, they would go to the local dance, learn to dance, yeah. find a girlfriend, get married, have children, settle down after doing probably national service. So it was all very serious. I mean, you know, you can't, one doesn't sort of think, oh, yes, you must have had it. You know, they didn't have much education. They left school at a very early age, had a sort of pretty hard work in life. And um, when the 60s came around and the Beatles suddenly appeared and they, you know, it was just a huge cultural gap, wasn't there, really? So, um, yeah, I, absolutely. <clears throat> I don't think anybody from that generation really liked the Beatles. It was... <laughs> <laughs> it was alien, wasn't it? Really, I think. Yeah. Some and, of the music and, that had gone before, to then suddenly come up with the Beatles and the Stones, and that type of music was was just like, so alien to everybody. And the, the whole rock and roll thing, where did that come from? You know, it was like it was it was just a complete antithesis. It was like punk in the seventies, and punk when punk came through in the, in the late seventies, it was is a similar sort of generational um, shock to the system that uh, people couldn't get their head around at all. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, yeah. Well, it is, yeah. I mean, they, they also had rationing and they they all had terrible yep. shoes and they all had terrible <laughs> bunions and they they were kind yep. of, you know, terrible clothes. I mean, there was a lot of pain, wasn't there? You know, it was like... Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. It's, um, yeah. They, there wasn't that kind of complacency that we we had slightly, even though we moaned about, a lot during the 80s, let's face it. Everyone I know moaned. Now we look back and think, oh, actually, we should have moaned. Actually, it wasn't bad, yeah. It was <laughs> yeah. But then, now, yeah. Yeah, so what was, what was your first gig you went to? Was that in Barnsley? Yes. Um, so my first gig was, uh, in fact, we went, went to see them about five or six times. Uh, it was a band called Son of a Bitch. And they were the local uh, rock band uh, who later then changed their name to Saxon. Oh, excellent. So uh, it was an early incarnation of Saxon, and they were they were great. They were really good, loud, heavy guitars, um, very tight, very polished. Uh, and you can see why they, they went on and became successful as Saxon. But they were, they were great, and we went just to go down to the Centenary Rooms, which was above the Civic Hall in Barnsley, paid £2 to get in. I think it was about two pounds. Not even that much. I don't know. And we managed to get served at the bar as well, which is even better. Being probably sixteen-year-olds, fifteen, sixteen-year-olds, yeah, um, and and uh, enjoy sort of a bitch. Yeah, they were great. They were good. So were... that was my that was my first sort of set of gigs. My first big gig. Um, I don't think what my first big gig would be. But I used to go 
after that, so we started to go out to Manchester and Sheffield, Sheffield City Hall and Manchester, um, not Apollo, what's the other one? Free Trade Hall? Can't remember now. We saw bands like Rainbow and Camel, went to see Rush. Um, the, the one that made the biggest impact, we went to see Blue Oyster Cult. Um, in, I think it was 76 or 75, I think it was 76. And supporting Blue Oyster Cult were Japan. Wow. And Japan made a massive impact on me. They were totally different, a bit like the Alice Cooper moment. Uh, they were totally different from anything else. They were completely mismatched with Blue Oyster Cult, but we just loved them. They were amazing. Uh, and from that point, we, um, myself and Lyndon, who was uh, the keyboard player in Dance Society, um, we followed them around. We we went basically on tour with them and watched them quite a lot of gigs around the country. Anywhere we could go and get to see them, we went. Uh, and that was, you know, that was a, a big, a big part of a big influence, really, in my my love for music. Yes, and what followed with joining the band. Because it's interesting, you were talking about some of those bands you saw quite a lot of. Because um, my brother was, I had was the seven years older, and I sort of, I suppose, worshipped him. And he was into prog rock with a bit mm -hmm. of heavy metal on the side, as you could imagine. So there was those kind of bands, like um, you know, it was like Deep Purple, Rainbow, yeah. and yeah. Uh, Black Sabbath were the kind of yeah. heavy bands. And then there was the arty bands like Yes and Genesis, Camel. Wishbone yeah. Ash and the solo work of people like Rick Wakeman and Van Gellis thrown in, oh, which yeah. I, I used to love, you know, I used to sneak into his oh. room and play them with great excitement and then feel a bit embarrassed in the 80s when I sort of, <laughs> it was one of those biblical moments where I had to deny all knowledge that I, <laughs> I, I, I knew who, well, who, who you're right, know, yeah. Roger Dean posters and all that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got the Roger Dean books somewhere, yeah, they were great, but uh, Wish, Wishbone Ash are the band that I learned to play guitar to. You know, sat in sat in my friend's bedroom with his brother's uh, Gibson SG, learning the, the learning the tracks from Argus. Oh yes, um, that's the album, isn't it? We all it's the album. album. Yeah, we we learned the guitar parts together, just listening to them and trying to work them out on his brother's guitar. Yes, it's yeah. um, it's an awesome album. It's just absolutely amazing. I love and I do love Blue Oyster Cult. There was a there was a I think the B side to you know. Um, Seasons don't fear the reaper, which was I don't know. It was a, there was a great line about. Time to time to hear B sides. I just thought it was one of the, you know, it was one of those. I can't yeah. remember what the song was called, but I just always you know, love that. I love lyrics, and so you know, when you hear a lyric like you know that you just yeah, you know, you know, time to time to play. Oh, it's time to play B sides. That's it. So, um, oh, yeah. burning <laughs> for you. I think it was called burning for you. That was it. Right, right, right yeah. Yeah, there you go. A great band, oh, yeah. And I saw Wishbone Ash and Spirit was supporting them at the time with Rain. Really? Wow. So that was that was quite exciting. There was a lot of guitar solos that evening. Oh yeah. <laughs> so so <laughs> I must admit I got a bit bored, but I you know enjoyed it as well. It was good fun. Yeah. But um yeah, so what how did you or why did you pick up a guitar? You know, this was quite a, a moment, I guess. Yeah, well, like I said, it, it was my friends. We went to see my my, my best friend Gary, um, his brother Tony, uh, played in a in a rock band, local local rock band, and um, we went to see them practice and then uh, perform at the local workingmen's club, and um, they were great. Um, not quite at son of a bitch level, but they were they were they were really good. Uh, and we we were both really into that sort of guitar music, and like I said, we, we literally were sat in his bedroom listening to Wishbone Ash, and picked up a guitar and tried to work it out and, and play it, and wanted to wanted to be guitarists. 
Um, and we would sit there for hours just strumming away, picking out the little parts together and trying to work out how to do it. You know, we literally didn't have a teacher or anything. We just, we just did it all by ear. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it was great fun, yeah. Amazing. And then from there, just formed little bands. We both went off and formed uh, different bands, then got together in the same band and did, did all that stuff and, and just loved playing guitar. Yes. Just and then school bands were... So what time, when did you leave school? What was your kind of, you know, what was the year? Did you leave at 16 or did you stay on for some? No, level? I stayed on to A-levels, yeah. So um, it was 18 when I left. Um, so that will have been, blimey, 70, 76. It was 76, 77, I think. Right. Uh, so, yeah. And what, was, and what was punk like? Did that have a, you mentioned Japan with the, the great Mick Cowan on bass. Oh, yeah. It's um, <laughs> amazing singles. But, um, yes, I mean, what did punk also sort of have a big impact on the band, uh, on you? Yeah, well, on me, yeah, it did. I mean, um, initially I thought that was a load of rubbish because obviously I was into prog and, and guitar bands and heavy metal at that time and, and thought, what is this? This is just not music. But, you know, I was persuaded to listen to it a bit more and a bit more and then... I started to to like it and, and appreciate, you know, the simplicity and the power and the energy of it. And, um, yeah, really got into it. And, you know, at the start of the independent record scene, um, sort of 78, 79, I would guess, uh, when there was a lot of bands releasing independent singles, uh, we, used to, we used to spend our, our, our weekends down at the, the local record shop going through what the latest singles were, having to look at the covers, seeing if they were interesting, trying to get them to play them on the on the shop stereo, see if they were any good and and, and buying the ones that we, we liked. Yeah. You know, bands like bands like the Buzzcocks, Susan the Banshees, um, you know, bands like that who you know I remember very clearly loving Spiral Scratch EP, the Buzzcocks. Yeah. Um just such a great EP, you know, and, and songs like that, and um, Happy House, Susie's Banshees. And I've still got, oh, I've got this little in loft actually, but all the seven inches, I've still got all those. And they were just, um, like I say, it was just the just the sort of energy and, and vibrancy and the newness of it all. Um, and that, you know, that sort of dissipated a little bit quite quite quickly, I think, only a couple of years, you know, with, with the Pistols and the Clash sort of spearheading the way but i was more interested with the periphery some of the some of the more darker bands like the cure uh particularly uh, the, their first set of singles or first album which is amazing i thought it was incredible uh i loved all that all that first that first cure album yes. um, and we were lucky enough to um jump on the support with the cure on one of their first tours yeah so we um, yeah that was that was Probably one of our first, that was probably our first big gig, really. We sent a cassette off of our tracks uh, and managed to get a support slot at Manchester. Amazing. God, you must have thought you were yeah. sort of dreaming, actually, on that point. Yes, oh, absolutely, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Must have been, it, was, must it was incredible. And and we were lucky because on that tour, they'd, they'd done that for every gig. I thought it was a fantastic idea. They'd invited local bands to send in tapes and they'd picked a couple of support bands for each gig. Uh, and at the end of the tour, they picked the, their favourite three bands from the whole tour to play with them in London, and we were one of them. So it was it was fantastic. You know, it was a real you know that was a real sort of uh, motivator for us as a band. 
at yes, that point. And, you know, this is this is we can do this. You know, the sort of thing. This is actually you know something we can actually do. Yes, absolutely. God, that is a genius idea. I'm sure I spoke to someone the other day who who must have been on that. Must have been one of those bands, actually, which I can't remember. That. But yes, I, I sort of yes, that was kind of that was kind of when you said that. So how did how did the dance society form then? How did this all come together? Well, it formed from two bands. So there was a band in Barnsley called Y. That's the letter Y with a question mark. Yes. Who. Um, Who'd, who'd been going around for a little while, who were fronted by this weird-looking kid called Steve, uh, and had uh, four or five members all doing very strange electronic-y type stuff. And then there was myself and Lyndon, the keyboard player, uh, who would form this little duo called Lips X. Uh, and we produced a, a cassette album. We went to a little studio in Pogmore Road in Bansley, <laughs> four-track studio, and, and recorded these songs and put them out as a cassette album, which was very sort of, um, I describe it, it's, it's sort of like Cure slash Roxy Music, sort of arty slash Japan um, type music. And when we were pretty much the only two bands that were doing anything weird or yeah. strange and unusual in Barnsley, and we'd been to see them and, and um, play at the Sintin Rooms, uh, and and we thought it might be a good idea to get together, so we approached them about getting together, and we did. And we we they just had a, a single out on a compilation album called End of Act One. The album, the compilation album, was called Bouquet of Steel. Yes, which which did quite well. Um, but we, we we formed together, so we became a six piece um, called Dance Crazy initially, um, but then we decided that. Um, we got a gig uh, with John Keenan to do Futurama in Leeds, which was uh, Futurama 2, which is going to be televised. Uh, and we'd, we'd played it. It was billed as Y, because that's who uh, he'd booked it through. But when we played, we had a banner saying Dance Crazy behind us because we decided to change the name before the, before the, uh, before the concert. But before the concert was broadcast, we then changed the name again to Dance Society. So when it was broadcast, it had Dance Society on the, the bottom of the screen. Um, so that was our first um, first like proper gig, if you like. And yeah. that was a six-piece, yeah. Because um, I think it was probably last year I did an interview with, with Paul Hampshire, who's also goes as B, yeah. and he was in Y. So I, I was sort of interested yep. in he was into, there. <laughs> into a circle, and it was like yep. fascinating. And then, you know, I find out about Y, and then I realised it was on this... You were talking about sort of regional bands, but Cherry Red Records brought out that CD of Sheffield bands and why that and that mm. single happens to be on one of them, doesn't it? So it's like, oh, it all makes sense. It's quite... Yeah, well, yeah, but Paul or B, Paul I'm sure B, um, yeah, he was, on the, he was in the band for the first sort of incarnation, if you like, and then after about six months, um, he decided to leave and go to London and... Um, make his fame and fortune there, which he did, he did very well. He's great. I spoke to him recently, he seems happy. Yes. Yeah, it's That's good. An, um, an I know, it was just, you know, it's just fascinating, all that kind of, that little, uh, the beginnings of your, of the dance society is just quite fascinating in the way it all sort of oh, yeah. organically yeah. comes together. So it's you, amazing. 
<laughs> I know that I think with with any of these bands and, and making the records, there is something about the stars having to kind of literally line up, don't they? Everything just has to sort of slightly come into place. And it, it probably isn't going to stay there for long. But if it does, something kind of happens, which is quite memorable. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think, you know, there's some things that are sort of almost preordained <laughs> or destiny or destined to happen. And, and certainly, you know, the, the the fact that we all got together, we were all um disaffected youths from Barnsley who were wanting to get out of Barnsley because there was nothing for us there. We didn't want to go down the pit. Um, we didn't see pretty much any other option. We weren't footballers or anything like that. So we didn't see any other option really than to, to follow our passion of making music. And, and we really did all believe that we could actually do this, make music and get out of Barnsley and become successful, you know, and... Um, and that was the plan, and that's that's what we all worked at really hard, you know. And, and I, I teach music now, so I'm saying to my sixteen and seventeen year olds, eighteen year olds that I teach, you know, you've got to work really, really hard if you want to make it in 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 music business because you have. And you know, and they think working really hard is like you know having to practice once a week for a couple of hours. You know, we used to practice like nine hours a day every day. Yes. <laughs> and sell it and, and and really really work hard but having said all that you know it's it's it does it does have to have five or six people or have many in the band all pushing in that same direction and they, they've all got to want to do it uh, otherwise it just doesn't work but yeah. when when the stars align like you say when those stars align it really does make a massive difference and it really you know can send you on, on your way Yes. Uh, and that's very for we were very fortunate in in that that's what happened even though we uh, you know initially we lost paul hampshire and um, the bass player and dave patrick left so we ended up being um a four piece and then we brought another bass player in to become a five piece again uh, and then that that lineup stabilized if you like and we then released our first single clock which was self financed um to the world and John Peel picked up on it and um yes good old John Peel to say is, is history it was quite good it's interesting about the practice actually because every everyone I've interviewed everyone literally from the 80s I mean you know it's a week sweep and statement but everyone did really work hard so they you know they just put in a lot of time and actually a band who weren't from the 80s particularly was Twisted Sister and I did an interview with JJ French and they spent really? 10 years kind of just touring not touring just playing in New York sort of two three three times a night you know for all that period yeah. played hundreds thousands of gigs you know got rejected by literally everybody and then just got that one break and they were okay, we've been rejected for 10 years, but let's just make this happen. I mean, it's an amazing story. and There's a brilliant film. Where... I've seen it, yeah. It is a fantastic <laughs> film. I love that film. It's so good. But that's exactly what it is. It's exactly that But self-belief, having to, to, to hold on to that self-belief and just keep working, 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 and eventually you'll get there. Yes. Well, I was talking to that those guys from the Bolshoi, you know, just an independent band, really, Um they won Beggar's Banquet, but it was like they got that, you know, there was a post of them at Reading Rock Festival and they just said, God, thank God we played so much before that gig because, you know, we we would have just lost it if we hadn't, you know, we we knew what we were yeah. doing. We could go there. Yeah. We could just go on to automatic, go through that gig. Otherwise, if we just played a few gigs at the, 
you know, around in front of your friends and family and anybody else you can blackmail oh. to see, we'd have just completely bottled it. So it was that kind of importance of putting in the time and knowing what you yeah. do. And the same with the Beatles and all that kind of gig at Hamburg as well, just playing oh, yeah, several, several, several gigs a night for years and then just thinking, right, we've done the apprenticeship stuff. We can. Yeah, know, but even then, if you have you, I don't know if you've watched the Get Back documentary that's yes. on Disney Plus, and you know, them sitting in, they're literally sitting every day in the studio working on the new album, you know, for nine hours a day. It's a, it's a job almost. Well, it is a job, but you know, they, they obviously love what they do. And they even though Afrom disappeared from <laughs> time to time, they were always there working on their tracks and working on the music and trying to, you know, come up with the new songs for the, the album. And that's after, you know, they've had that massive success. They didn't, you know, yes. unless they were passionate about it, they weren't going to do that, were they? I, think it was, I thought it was a, an absolutely fascinating insight into the band. Yes. That documentary is really, really interesting. It was great when the producer... Um, just said, you know, when they were trying to get the songs together and he said, what about the one, you know, about the long road that you were writing or working on? You know, and you think, God, that's one of the most iconic kind of popular yeah. songs of our time. And there was like, oh, that one. OK, we can we'll work on that a bit more. And then, you know, it's just amazing <laughs> seeing that creative process of them, you know, me, yeah, sort of reading the papers, responding to what was happening in their general lives and putting that into music, as well as kind of messing about a lot. And yeah, yeah. having fun, and that's what it's about. You can't not have fun doing it if you love music, and you know, it's all, it's all about having fun as well. It's putting the work in, you have to balance it a little bit, but yeah, yeah absolutely. It was, it was such a such an insight into the Beatles' creative process, but I think it's, it's mirrored a lot in a lot of bands. And in, in you know, in the way that a lot of bands work, yes. You know, and um, to get to get that level of of quality, you can't. It doesn't just happen well, unless you're extremely lucky or extremely talented, I guess. But it doesn't just happen like just like that. You know, you've got to work at it and develop it and hone it into something that's. Um, that's fantastic, hopefully. Yes, well, no, absolutely. If only they could have made a documentary on Exile in Main, on Main Street, that would just, just cap it off. Oh, yeah. All, all Ziggy <laughs> Stardusts, you know. Oh, my word, yeah, that would have been amazing. Amazing to see that in the studio. But, yeah, so you could done your first single, which is Self Finance. So how did you, yeah. how were you managing to sort of put this together? Because, obviously, with the 80s, you know, we'd had, you know, Thatch got in 79, then we had the Miners' Strike, Portland yep. or Greenham Common, you know, there was a huge amount of unemployment and there was so little money about. So a lot of the indie bands I've interviewed were claiming, you know, social security, job seekers yep. allowance, enterprise allowance schemes. So how were you managing to sort of navigate, you know, the band in those early years? Well, you're right. I mean, the, the minor strike had a massive effect uh, on Barnsley because obviously Barnsley were a pit town. So, you know, that was a, that was a huge uh, thing in around town. But the five of us were. Uh, I'm just trying to remember now. I think we decided. I think we it worked out at about a thousand pounds to put the single out, which was quite a lot of money. Well, it's a little lot of money, but it was a lot of money back then. So we um, we said we'd put two hundred pound in each, and um, I'm trying to think if when I was working. I, I think I was working at the local college at that point so i would i would i i was employed um and it's earning some money i think linden was also employed um 
Yeah, I think, so a few of us were working. I think uh, if we weren't working, we definitely signing on. Um, and we managed to scrounge and, and get the money together somehow. I'm not quite sure exactly how these <laughs> now. It's a long time ago, but we managed to, to get the money to press the record and produce the artwork. And we did a lot of it ourselves. The, 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 the cover was printed by my then girlfriend at the college tech. And we folded, me and myself in London, folded a thousand sleeves and put them in plastic bags and did all that sort of stuff that you do. Um, so yeah, to make it as cheap as possible, and then we obviously spent as much money as we could afford to send out as many copies as we could to DJs and and promotion into magazines and papers and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then um, I think we had a deal with Red Rhino or Rough Trade. I'm not sure to distribute the records through the record shop. What was what was left? Yeah, um, I don't think we made any money out of it at all, or very little. Um, but that wasn't the point. The point was the point was about promoting the single. And like I said, once um, John Peel jumped on it and, and played it a few times, that was that was exactly what we, what we wanted. And then at that point, we um, we were playing a few gigs here and there, and we got Marcus Featherby involved, who was a manager promoter in Sheffield. Uh, and he's he jumped on board as as a our manager and put out our second single. No Shame in Death, which was actually recorded before the single we released, Clock. Yeah. Um, it had been recorded in an earlier session um, about, I don't know, probably about nine months before we recorded Clock. Yes. Yeah. And that, that must have, because actually having the the gatekeepers of the 80s is a, a massive thing, isn't it? This is why we remember the music mm. from only 40 years ago, because... Um, it is kind of amazing that, you know, there were three weekly music papers who had huge circulations. There was obviously Kid Jensen, you know, John Peel, Tommy Vance. But John Peel, you know, the John Peel show was just so big, you know, and you got two sessions, one in 81, then in 82. So that must have really raised the game a lot because, you again, you weren't just playing in front of your friends and family and anybody else you could, you know, emotionally blackmail to go and see you. You suddenly, you suddenly <laughs> yes. had a, a wider audience. Absolutely, yeah. No, it made a massive difference. I mean, it, it sort of brought us to the UK. I mean, everybody who was into music listened to John Peel. It was the thing that you you listened to. There isn't an equivalent of it today, I guess. But, you know, to hear any new music, to see what the latest thing was, uh, you know, you listen to John Peel. And, he, you know, he'd get some great bands in on session as well. You know, and when we got invited to session, it was just incredible. You know, it wasn't just going down to London to record in Made of Ale Studios. We had Dale Griffiths producing us, you know, uh, from, from like the Hoople. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's just like, whoa, this is this is like a dream come true. And so we recorded the four songs, and and you have to do them very very quickly, and you have to, you know, and this is the advantage of being very well rehearsed and very well, uh, you know, practiced in terms of like knowing the songs inside out because you literally had to pretty much play them live and then just do a few overdubs if you were lucky, if you had time. Uh, and that was that. Um, but yeah, then it was, then the excitement wait for it to actually get broadcast and uh, listen to it on the radio. And and from that point, then we started getting um, more interest, more gigs, et cetera. And it sort of snowballed from there uh, up to the point where we, we, well, Marcus sort of disappeared. He did disappear in act. I think with, with some of our money, but I'm not really 100% <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, and um, Jazz Summers stepped into the breach to manage us, and he was from London, and he 
said he knew his stuff and he could get us a record deal and did all the, all the usual promises and stuff. But in you know, in fairness to Jazz, he did sort of follow through with that and, and managed to do that. So that's um, amazing. Unfortunately, he died a few years ago now. But um, yeah, he was uh, he was a bit of a wide boy, but <laughs> but he did manage to get his record deal. So, so was, was, was this with Pax Record? No, it's um, Marcus Featherby was Pax. Yes. Right. So Marcus Featherby, um, like I said, he was a promoter and, and sort of self-proclaimed record label entrepreneur, and had Pax Records. Uh, I don't think I don't think he didn't release a lot on there. I don't think before he disappeared, but he did release our twelve-inch single. So that was good. Right. So Seduction was on your own label. No. Yes. Seduction was back on Society Records, but this is when we teamed up with Jazz. Yes. Um, so he he basically financed that mini album, uh, and we recorded that in London with his uh, friends Tim Parry producing it, in uh, in some studios under the archways that we had to stop every two minutes to let a train go past as we were recording <laughs> it. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was good fun. Um, we we slept on Jazz Summers' office floor in um, Finkel Street in London. Uh, and then used to walk in the rain uh, up towards Camden to the studios uh, and do some recording and then trudge back again to the to the office and sleep on the office floor in the sleeping bag again. And we did that for, uh, I can't remember any days now, probably four or five days, I think, until we recorded all the tracks that we needed to do uh, before heading back up to Barnsley. So, yeah. And were you, was, um, and were you picking up a kind of a, quite an audience at this stage? We were starting to, yes. I mean, the the, the peel sessions were was were working really nicely because they, they were repeated a couple of times, uh, and we'd done. We start well, yeah, well at that time. I think we were just about to go on tour with Killing Joke, so we were supporting Killing Joke. We did two tours supporting Killing Joke UK tours, which were good. Oh, we did a little tour in Holland, I think, as well. Um, Testing my memory now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So yeah, we did a short tour in Holland, which was a, just a nice little setup tour, and then we did um, two tours with Kill and Joke, which were university type venues, university and polytechnic venues, uh, and and that we picked up quite a good audience from those Kill and Joke gigs uh, with the John Peel stuff, and then we did out when we went out and did our our own tour just after that. So we'd done. Seduction, and then um, the next, uh, our, our sort of biggest independent hit, which was Somewhere, the single. Yes. We recorded that with Richard O'Brien, famous for Rocky Horror Picture yes. Show, and uh, it was a strange combination. I don't quite know exactly how that happened. So Richard <laughs> O'Brien from Rocky Horror Picture Show and um, from Crystal Maze fame. Yes. Had you yeah. had had you sat down as a band to sort of talk about your image, image and look and style? Not really. No. I mean, we we just eventually when when we got signed to uh, Vista, we had we did have a stylist. Excellent. Briefly, <laughs> but up to that point, we were just doing our own thing. Um, we we were all into the similar sort of music and vibe, I think. So it, it sort of worked. We didn't really have, didn't really think about. We were five lads from Barnes. We didn't really think about image too much. Having said that, though, obviously myself and Lyndon were heavily into Japan, so 
that image permeated through a little bit. I do remember dyeing my hair red and purple at one point. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> but um, in terms of the, you know, we, we sort of wanted to, I don't know, I guess it was just a sort of a new wave image, really. We didn't go. We didn't go full on. I watched the documentary last night actually on New Romantics, but we, we definitely didn't go New Romantic <laughs> with all the frilly shirts and and that no. sort of thing. But um, although I, I guess we were a little bit image conscious, but it wasn't a it wasn't a big thing. Um, yeah, we, we were just you know an independent band, I guess. But there was quite that yeah. kind of the the, the lead. I mean, Leeds is is getting a lot more. Um, I don't know, critical acclaim, isn't it, for the early '80s period and the the venue, the warehouse, and and all that. Yeah, bands. we played there a few times. Yeah, in the warehouse, we even had a Christmas party there. We hired the warehouse for a Christmas party one year. But yeah, that was the. They had Leeds had a little bit more of a darker scene, I think. Yes. Than, uh, oh, that we started. I mean, we cut our teeth playing in Sheffield. You know, we played at the Marples Club and we used to play there once every month, pretty much, at start. We, we must have played, must have been our most played venue. But then um, Leeds sort of took over. I'm not quite sure why. It became a little bit more um, independent, a little bit more, I don't say the word cliquey, but it was a bit more cool, if you like, a bit cooler than Sheffield. Uh, and they had a, a shop called X Clothes in Leeds. Right. Which was... Um, very, um, you had a lot of really interesting rock stuff. Um, goth, we might, well, you would term goth now. There was no such term at that point. Um, there's a lot of goth boots and new rocks and those types of things and leather trousers and all that sort of stuff. Um, so it, it was really, you had a little sort of scene in Leeds, sort of like a, like I said, now you term it goth scene, but there wasn't such a thing at the time. So yes. that, that sort of, warehouse club became the focus for that that scene um and so we used you, to go there a lot and had you got slightly you know inspired with there was also another record label some bizarre records that had you know early soft sale and and had all those kind of you know throbbing gristle and was it James yeah Thurwell and those kind of the swans what was was that kind of I know it's a bit different to Japan but was that kind of scene starting to I mean it was just developing so it was it was like if you're in the independent music and the John Peel show you know I just wondered if you were starting to sort of pick up on that kind of dark yeah abs- absolutely I was just, I was talking to, to uh, a guy in Italy about this the other day yeah there's, there's some bizarre I said, I'd completely forgotten about it but yes Robin Gristle particularly were definitely on our radar um, as, as you know, something really interesting and, and, and something to sort of, of check out, which we did. Um, and the Some Bizarre label was becoming was becoming known as you know something that was really doing really interesting stuff. But we never really crossed paths with it, unfortunately. It would have been, I think, it would have been a good label for us, to be honest. But then yeah. obviously we got we got we got um, interest from the majors, so. So what was the atmosphere like of the band when you were coming for your that the the the, the album which was on Arista, which is um, Heaven Is Waiting? Was the band at that stage? Did you feel like it was a really coherent sort of unit? Yeah, absolutely. We we we'd done seduction, we'd done somewhere which had done really 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 well, and that was the sort of catalyst that got signed to uh, Arista. We had offers from Warner's and EMI. But the guy from Arista was really into the band and he, he persuaded us to sign. He said, we'd, we'd have creative control, blah, 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 blah. Um, 
which is fantastic. Um, and we had the songs pretty much ready to go. Uh, we went in and demoed them um, and they sounded great. And we just were looking for a producer. Um, and Nigel Gray was suggested who'd done Susan DeBanchese. Uh, so we went in with Nigel Gray, but it didn't, it wasn't great. It wasn't what we were wanting. Uh, so we sort of came out of that a bit disillusioned, but then um, King Birdo uh, was, was brought on the scene, Ian Brody, um, who'd done some work with Echo and the Bunnyman. Yes. And, and he, he was successful with his own stuff. He's done, he's done some fantastic production jobs. And he came in and remixed and, and reproduced some of the tracks and did an amazing job. It was exactly what we were looking for. Uh, so we were all really, really happy with, with the outcome for his waiting. I thought it was, it was a really fine album. Uh, unfortunately, during that time, the, the guy who'd signed us left us and moved on to, to another record company, which left us a little bit in limbo land. You know, the, the album was, was put out and, put, and promoted, etc. But after that, once he'd gone, we were a band signed by somebody else. And, and therefore, you know, the new guy who came in wasn't really interested in us. You know, he did he did the, the least possible. I think he could he could do. And he wasn't interested. He, you know, we we had a couple of singles after that, and that was pretty much it. He, you know, that was that was the end. Unfortunately, yes. um, with a little bit more, I think looking back on it now, <clears throat> with a little bit more, you know, time and effort and energy put into the band, we could have we could have done a lot more. You know, looking at what came after, like Sisters and The Mission and those types of bands, if we'd have hung, hung on and hung around, you know, I, I, I really feel we could have, you know, been along those, along those as successful as those uh, bands were, but yes. it wasn't to be. Well, God, that's a story that I've heard quite a few people saying that, you know, they, yeah. they got It's signed. a common story. I know, it's, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? And suddenly, you know, yeah. the person who was going to champion the band suddenly... Gets offer from someone else and you know can't say no and, yeah and and the band's uh, left with a new person yeah was, yeah unfortunately that's the way the record companies work well that's you know unless you you've got somebody who can who's in there who's who's championing you you know they've got so many only so many bands and so much money to spend on so many bands so unless you're not flavor of the day then you've you've had it basically yes so did that mean it- when you went went to do the third album looking through was that was that kind of a difficult process for the band at that stage because you it was because we weren't we weren't signed at that point we we'd basically been kicked off Arista after the hold on single we were kicked off the label um and we hadn't got a label but we had got some songs so we thought it would the best thing to do would to go and record the songs um as the best we could get them which were <clears throat> which were going to be basically going to be demos for the album uh, which we did, and um, we didn't get picked up. We, we, we thought we'd got a deal with Virgin, but it fell through at the last minute. Uh, and then that was pretty much it. It all sort of fell apart. So the, that, that album, or the demos of that, that album, were originally, uh, later released, rather, on, on our own label, because we thought they were too good not to release, even, even if they were only in demo form. Yes. So we just released them on our own label, Society Records. God. And that was the swan song, really, before we before Steve went off to London and did his society thing, and uh, we got a new singer and became Johnny in the Clouds briefly. 
uh, and then it all basically just fell apart. God, and that was that was almost the perfect time for the band, wasn't it? Because uh, yeah, do, it almost was. Remember, yeah, I remember sort of watching, you know, on a Friday uh, late afternoon, the the tube, and seeing bands like The Mission on on there. And that was the one time the audience, because the audience were often quite static and looked quite bored, even though they yeah. were seeing this amazing array of bands. They were so spoiled. But the Missions fans and the Smiths were, you know, they were like, they were really serious. And the Mission were just amazing at that stage, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, they really, really took, you know, they took basically what we were doing and just took it that one stage further, which I think we would have done had we not broken up. But, you know, that's no, not bitter. <laughs> no. <laughs> and then what could have been? No, yeah, absolutely. Well, most, yeah. my, I suppose most bands I've, I've realised have got a bit of a five-year narrative, you know, the 12-month honeymoon practising like, you know, crazy, the single, the John Peel play the John Peel session that first album you know touring in the transit band then the second yeah, yeah. possibly third album and then it's like yeah things are getting a bit tricky you know everyone's um yeah sometimes yeah relatively yeah. tricky or just thinking how can we're still so poor <laughs> <laughs> that's very true yeah you know yeah I mean, it just it just seems to go in a sort of cycle like that you're right but um yeah it's a shame I think I think yeah had we had that uh, had we stayed on the lane or, or indeed got another deal I think we would have kicked on with it you know I mean it, it was it was there ready to to go we were all still confident in what we were doing yes uh, but with with not getting the with not getting the deal I think um, Steve was prized away if you like by Simon Napier Bell and his usual uh, way he did things as a solo artist and um you know, and and that, and that pretty much was the end of the band, really, as it as it, in that incarnation as it was then. Yeah, you know, we went we went back in the studio with Mark Copson from Music for Pleasure, who was who was the singer from, uh, sorry, from Dave's old band, who Mark, Mark, Music for Pleasure, great band, uh, and we did recorded pretty much an album or a set of demos with with Mark, which was a really good set of demos. We all listened to them the other day. Um, ready to try and get another deal, but that that never panned out. And then it just like like life does, it just makes people drift away and uh, and have different interests, and and it all just sort of fell apart from there. Yeah. So how do you, what how do you navigate the the late eighties and the nineties? Do you then have to go back and um, retrain, or or did you? Yeah. Think? Well. Yeah, sort of. I mean, I I, um, I basically fell into a job once once the band had definitely split up. I did some recordings, did some library music and stuff like that, and trying to sort of build a, a music career. I had my own little music company called Music To Go, <laughs> which wasn't very successful. Uh, but in the end, I was to pay the mortgage and do stuff like that. I had to get just a, what you might call a normal job, if you like, and I fell into a job. Um, managing a comic shop which was right up my alley because i was into comics and things so uh and i did that for a couple of years uh, in nottingham and then yeah. sheffield and then um worked at hmv so i was HMV. that was a terrible job uh it was great because i was obviously working records and music and everything else like that but it was 80 hours a week and it was crazy managing record shops so i did that for a while that sort of burned me out a little bit, uh, and then I decided we decided to to move from. We were living in Nottingham at the time, or near Nottingham, and we moved up to where my mum and dad lived up up, up here on the east coast. 
uh, to try and start again, really. Um, and then had a, a succession of jobs, including working as the record buyer at Woolworths <laughs> before Woolworths went, um, and just doing 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 things like that before before I had a, I had a, a rethink, a life rethink at uh, age forty, and what do I really want to do with my life? And I, I you know, did some of those self help books like you do, and and question a lot about what you were doing and what you really enjoyed doing. And I, I realized that I actually really like teaching. I like helping people and I like teaching. Um, so um, I did an IT course and while I was doing the IT course, uh, I was pretty much doing the teaching on the IT course because the teacher was never there. So in the class, as a, probably as the most knowledgeable one, but also the one that wanted to help us most, I did a lot, quite a bit of teaching and it got noticed that I was doing the teaching. And they said to me, would you like to take a class <laughs> as a teacher? And this was at an FE college. So I said, well, I'll give it a go. So I, I actually was began teaching for the, the, the FE college before I was fully qualified. And I really enjoyed it. So I then went and got qualified to be a teacher. And I started teaching IT at first. Uh, and then the opportunity came up to teach music. So I obviously jumped on that with both feet. And said, "Yeah, that's that's what I want to do." So I was, I began teaching music, and I've been doing that for since two thousand and seven. So teaching Fantastic. music, I've been teaching from two two thousand nineteen ninety eight. I started teaching part time. Two thousand, I started teaching full time. Two thousand seven, I started teaching music. Right. So yeah, it's been quite a while. So the stars did it. start to line up again, didn't they? After your, did you do Tony Robbins by any chance? Self help. Sorry. Did you do the Tony Second. Robbins? Did you do the Tony Robbins? No, oh, Tony Robbins. No, I didn't. No, no, I just I did the self. I can't remember which ones I did now. It was all these ones who, what do you want really out of life and all right. that sort of thing. Um, yeah, uh, there were some good books about actually, you know, not just list your interests and then, because you didn't have the, now the kids have got, in, in my college at least, where I, where I teach, sixth form, uh, the kids have got like a careers manager and they go and talk to the, the careers manager about what careers would be interested in, what university courses would be available, and do all this sort of proper stuff, which is great for the kids. It's fantastic because a lot of them don't know what they want to do at that age. Yeah, I mean, I certainly didn't know what I wanted to do other than play music at 16, 17, 18. Um, so it's really good for them. But back in 19, late 90s, there was none of that. So it's really up to you to decide what you wanted to do. I, I just know that I didn't want to work in retail. Um, there were certain things I didn't want to do, but I didn't know really what I wanted to do. But I did, like I said, I was doing this IT course and I just fell into teaching and it was, I knew that was one of the things that I really enjoyed doing was helping people and and uh, and just, you know, helping facilitate uh, my knowledge with, with them and, and helping them get where they wanted to go. So it, it really did sort of define where I was going from that point. In terms of, you know, at that point as well, 97, 98, I'd really fallen out with music. I'd, I'd, you know, had a real, you know, it was up to the point where I just didn't want to do anything musical at all. Right. Um, you know, I think, um, I think I just, I just had enough. I just, you know, I think I've I've been disillusioned so badly from from everything sort of collapsing and falling out at the end of the eighties. There was no good music about at the end of the eighties that I really got into. 
you know, in the early 90s, there wasn't, wasn't a great deal of good music either. I think it wasn't until sort of grunge and some of that music came through. I thought, that's not too bad. I, could, I, could, I quite like some of that stuff. Uh, and But I, just, I wasn't really actively following music at, at all. Um, I think the turning, well, one of the turning points was probably seeing uh, Radiohead on Jules Holland. Yeah. That was, um, that was a real epiphany and go, ooh, hang on, that's interesting. I really enjoyed that. So that sort of got me back interested again. I started to listen to a little bit more music. But yeah, and up to that point, it, it really sort of, I'd really sort of waned away from music completely. So I just shut myself into a teaching career. And, yes. and like I said, once I, once I started, and I was teaching IT to, uh, from between 2000 and 2007, I was teaching IT courses to pretty much everybody. I was doing, um, we had community hubs and I was teaching how people had to email the granny in Australia and all that sort of thing. You know, it was all very much internet-based. People were coming in to learn how to use the internet. Yes. Uh, as well as you know, applications like Word and Excel and those sort of things. Because nobody knew how to, to do all that. It was all new. It was, so it was all, that was all exciting and interesting. Yes. Uh, and then, obviously, when, sorry, when I got the opportunity to teach music, um, that was something I, I really wanted to do. So um, taking it, taking, the, you know, I did a little bit of music production to start with. So using technology, learning how to use computers to make music again. I'd done that back in the 80s when the computers were just coming out. So going back into it was a revelation in terms of what you can do. And that again, sparked my, uh, my desire to make music. So that period from 2007 to 2010 was really a real, um, a real reawakening of, of uh, creative juices, I guess. And then in 2010, met up with uh, Dave and Paul Gilmartin from the band. Yeah. Uh, and they said, you know, there's been this interest on Facebook. <laughs> they want us to get the band back together. And I'm going, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> We've come over because there's, there's a lot of people on Facebook who want to want to hear us play again. <laughs> really? Yeah. And um, yeah. So so yeah. So it was like, okay, then we'll let's give it a go. Can we get everybody back together? Well, no. Was the was the answer? We couldn't in the end. We got. Um, with myself, Paul, and and and, and Giggy, um, we couldn't get Tim back, who, who played bass. He wasn't interested. Lyndon, um, well, we didn't need Lyndon because we had David anyway. But um, and then Steve said he was going to come across and put some tracks on, but then he disappeared. So he was living in America, or still is living in America. Yeah. So, but we we managed to record a full album of songs. So we had uh, 12, 13 songs, all fully recorded, and this sounded fantastic. Really, really good. Uh, but we didn't have any vocals on them. So that was a bit of a sticky point. But then, fortunately, um, unbeknown to me, um, Giggy had contacted or been contacted by uh, Metalia, who said, I hear you're putting an album together, you wanting any help with it, backing vocals, etc." And so he sent her some tracks and she recorded the tracks and did an amazing job. And then, then this is all unbeknownst to me. He then played them to us and said, I've listened to this, what do you think? And it was, it was great. So we um, asked her to join the band, basically. She recorded the rest of the tracks and we released Change of Skin in 2012. Yes. Or 2011, I think it was 2011, 2012, yeah. 
And did that Which feel was a like complete a, departure. And did that feel like a nice new beginning for the band, having a slightly different lineup that you thought, well, this is slightly Yeah, it was. We knew we'd get a bit of flack because we because we hadn't got Steve. Uh, and we knew we'd get double flack because it was a female singer, not a male singer. And it's very rare. I was trying to think the other day of any instances of of bands who replaced a male singer with a female singer. And there's not many. The only famous one I could think of was Fleetwood Mac. Yes. And that's 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 the only one I could really think of. Um, but there's very of very few. So it was quite a quite a, a brave move, I guess. At the time it just seemed natural to us. It just seemed like, well, so what? You know, we'll just it's great, it sounds fantastic. You know, let's just do it. But yeah, yes. we did get quite a lot of flack from it. And did you um, and did you tour that as well? Did you start to sort of yeah. do, do live yeah. dates? Yeah, we did. Uh, the first one we did was the Wave Gothic Trethen in Germany. It was a uh, comeback special, if you like. <laughs> um, and we did a few a few selected UK dates around that as well, obviously. But that was the first big one. Um, yeah, and and we, obviously to tour, we had to get, I played bass and guitar on that album. So we had to get a bass player in. And we got um, a guy called Martin Robinson, who was fantastic to play bass with us. Uh, and we did quite a few gigs and, and got a second album ready, well, a second mini album ready, along the lines of Seduction. It was called Scary Tales, um, which was a themed Scary Tales thing. Yes. Um, yeah, and that, that came out and I think it pretty, pretty well. Did, did, all, did all, all sort of good. And then we changed the lineup again. Um, Giggy left, drummer left, and then so we got another drummer, and then uh, Martin left, and we got another bass player, and then David left, and we got another keyboard player, and uh, but and that's always been the way the band has, has changed personnel. Even back in the eighties, we changed personnel yes. as we were going. Um, so yeah, so uh, and then we released V One, which was our sixth album, uh, and then recently, well, recently it's nearly. Three years ago now, I think, the Sailing Mirrors album. And we are just about to get ready to go back into the studio to do our, it'll be our eighth album. The Loop. The Loop, indeed. The loop, the loop. How do you manage, you know, because actually it's quite a lot of, not responsibility, but there's a lot of work and sort of keeping things, you know, the plate spinning. How do you manage to do that, you know, with, with the band and, and sort of other things in life, dealing, dealing with that? It's, um... it's it, it, yeah, it's tricky. I don't, I don't know. I just, I don't really think about it too much. I love my job. My job's incredible, um, but I also love the band. So, doing stuff with the band is it's slow sometimes. It's frustratingly slow, but it's generally not me that makes it slow. <laughs> it's usually use the other people. But that you know, and and trying to get everybody together. You know, because obviously these days um, we all work because you can't, unfortunately, sustain a band on band revenue. That's just the way, way it is unless you're, and I think even if you're signed, unless you're super successful, I think you'd be struggling to make a living or make a you know proper living. So, you know, so you have to, you have to, you know, acknowledge that, yes. unfortunately, and say, that, you know, okay, so things are going to take time. It's going to be, you know, one practice a week instead of seven days a week. You know, it's going to be take a while for the demos to 
to come together and work on and develop the tracks. Um, and that's just the way it is. And that's why we're not releasing an album every year. We, we're having to release an album every three years or so because it takes that long to get all the tracks together and, and do the things that we want to do. Uh, and we've just, well, myself and Matelia, we released a, a, an album with Bloody Mask at the end of last year, um, which took up some time, but it was sort of downtime for Dan Society anyway. So, um, yeah, I know it's just, it's just a passion. So, uh, you know, for me, it's not, I don't think of it as work. It's, it's stuff I want to do. So yes. it doesn't feel like it's um, a chore or, 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 you know, like I say, it doesn't feel like it's work. Like I say, frustratingly, sometimes it takes a long, longer than I would like it to, but that's just the way it is. Yes. So do you, I mean, so how does the, 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 the creative music side come together? Do you all contribute or is there just a sort of a couple of people who really drive it through? Um, no, we all contribute. With the dance site, it's always been um, it's always been an equal, not I'm going to say equal contribution process. It's, it's it is generally an equal contribution process, but somebody has to come up with the idea. Yes. So <clears throat> whether that's me, or whether it's Jack on bass, or whether it's uh, Dylan on drums, who, who actually is a multi instrumentalist, or whether it's Mayeth, or, or whatever it is, whoever will bring an idea to the table, then we will develop it as a band. Uh, and we've always done it that way. We've always developed the ideas as a band, whoever's yeah. brought in the initial idea. And we always agreed from the very beginning of the dance to the ethos was we're not going to argue about songwriting credits. All songs are written by all five members of the band, regardless. Yeah. So no, no matter how much you input or how little you input, everybody gets an equal share of the songwriting. Um, so, yeah, and, and generally the songs... Which is why it takes a long time because the songs develop from you know practicing, jamming them out and and developing that way, and then we'll go away and, and, and usually I'll I've got my own little studio here, um, which I'm in now, to to sort of demo them in a in a, a free form demo, and then we'll take them back into the rehearsal process and and work on them some more and so on and so on until we until we get them to the point where as they are now. Uh, ready to go into the proper studio, if you like, and start to record them properly. Yes. And did you, I mean, that. has it been, you know, slight, you know, I sort of have my obsession with David Bowie, but playing with like um, <laughs> a different, you know, a different, quite a different set of group of people all through his career. Has that, yeah. do, do you sort of now looking at it, do you sort of find it quite in, enjoyable thinking actually that would, it's not a, it's not going to be the end of the world if someone leaves and someone else comes in because actually we can deal with that and that will yeah. also add a new possibly a new narrative to the you know the story of the not the story of the band but the actual what they might contribute to the sound of it which let's just go with it absolutely yeah no absolutely and definitely we go with that i mean it's also you know we get that obviously as new members come in and go and then their, their influences join the band and and leave the band and get new influences but you know our own influences change. So, you know, what I'm listening to now, you know, will will be different from what I listened to when I was listening to the, when I was recording the last album and helping write the last album. So they always develop and change, I think. Otherwise it'd be boring if we yes. <laughs> you know if we were doing the same album again and again and again with the same members and listening to the same music and it'd be exactly the same album. You know, so I, I I'm very much of the, of the 
of the mindset that I listen to as much new music as possible. And some of it, you know, some of it I'm sure will influence or get in as, as an influence into the songs that I'm helping to create. So, but I think that's that's part of the of any band's development person. Certainly, was part about is he used to, you know, get us get new people in all the time and 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 use them if you like to um, to to create or help create his tracks. Yes. Did you yeah. did you just on that subject? Did you go to see um, the Bowie film Moon Age Daydream? I haven't seen of... it yet. No, no, no. I've heard it's really good. It's very it's very interesting because it isn't the story of you know like the usual narrative with lots of sort of people talking about, you know, what they experienced with David yeah, yeah. Bowie, Earl Slick and Garson and all those bunch. You know, it's a kind of very impressionistic idea of a creative person. I think you'll love it. Actually. I think yeah. just... I'm really looking forward to seeing it, actually. Yeah, I'm definitely going to go and see it. Uh, but I haven't had an opportunity yet, but yeah. Yes. It's, it's so with, fascinating. It is. Yeah, it, it, the, the creative journey and, and what what is creativity is an amazing subject, really. And I do think you know, having been obsessed with the Smiths during my 80s period, and it's just kind of interesting how their music came together and how it sounds. And then, I know it's a bit a bit tricky, but sort of how does, how does you know, the lead singer now create music and what, you know, what does that sound like to me? Not just because of the comments, but just musically, just thinking, I'm not quite sure if this has quite got the essence and the the kind of what it is that creates that magic, which I find quite I've, I've spoken to a few people you know who have been in bands and they've kind of they've gone off in 10 minute sort of monologues about the creative process and I think because I think it's a kind of deeply spiritual thing that's my take <laughs> yeah no it's, I, I agree it, there's something about the it's the me meeting of minds if you like when you're working in a band as opposed to being a solo creative person it's a different process and it's it's is using each other around you to get the best out of each other you all you would assume good musicians otherwise you wouldn't be playing together but it's then it's, it's teasing out those influences that other people have and, and and picking out those best bits to put into your own melting pot of um of ideas yeah i think it's, it's slightly different if you're a solo artist because because you you haven't got anybody to bounce ideas off, but that's what Bowie did though. That's why he brought these other people in, especially with producers and things, who you know who he could bounce ideas off and and get them to put their slants and takes on on things. Yes. Which is what you know, not just Bowie, but Madonna, Michael Jackson, all those all those other artists. They all did exactly the same thing. You know, they yes, they had ultimate creative control, but they used the hot producers of the time or the hot artists of the time to collaborate with and, and write with. Yes, um, well, I always remember never realised it. Madonna's kind of album with William Orbit was probably one of her most, you know, as a body of work, that was probably one of her best. Uh, yeah, I love that album. It's fantastic. William Orbit's very underrated. And it's kind of interesting, you, you know, because I remember the guy from Jefferson Airplanes, yeah, airplane. I mean, when he got his the band together, he wanted a female singer. He just didn't want a load of blokes. Do you do you also feel you're quite relieved that you've got uh, that energy within the band as well now that you you think well that's quite a relief because yeah. yeah, I love having a, a female singer. You know, she she is an amazing singer. So um, the stuff that she does is incredible some of the stuff is just mind-blowing the stuff on the bloody mask album that she's done with the choirs and things is, is, is incredible it's not really suitable for the dance society i would guess but you know um again very 
it's it's she's got a lot of different influences to me. Um, like you, she's very much into the Smiths. And I was never never a big Smiths fan. I like Johnny Marr's guitar, I love love Johnny Marr. Um and I like Morris's lyrics. And I like I do and it's not that I don't like the Smiths, don't get me wrong. Um but I was never a massive, but she 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 like yourself was was a massive Hugh Smiths fan. You'd never tell that from uh our music, I guess, but oh you might, I guess you might, you know. So we've all got like these influences. Uh and it's great having a it's in some ways it's it's really good to have a female singer. Um I think there's a there's but there's also a, a real prejudice against female artists in the music business, which is which still needs to be addressed. Um you know, it's it's if you look at the lineups from the festivals again this year, it's it's sadly lacking in female artists again. Yeah, you know, um, and somebody needs to address that. So uh, we keep talking about it, but nobody's actually doing anything. But I don't know. It's not to put. Um, to, it doesn't matter to me, to be perfectly honest. It, it's it's not a gender thing. It's just somebody who's an interesting artist that I want to work with. I don't care whether they're what colour they are, what gender they are, <laughs> or what gender they um, identify as. It doesn't matter to me in the slightest. They're no. human beings and, and you know, it's, and, and that's that's fine. As long as they're interesting artistically and creatively, then that's that's great. Yes. That's this is the most important thing. So with this year, you've theoretically got an album coming out, haven't you, The Loop? Theoretically, yes. <laughs> Theoretically, and this is it's in the pipeline. And do you? I know you've got you've had some dates recently. Do you have any dates for the summer coming up as well? No, we've deliberately I've deliberately held off on booking anything in. We did the antenna thing in Leeds um, just after Christmas, in February. It was early February, I think, which was a, a really good gig. Actually, really enjoyed that. Um, but um, I just want to concentrate on getting the album's just been bubbling around, and, that, and it's 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 there. It's done. It's just a case of getting in the studio and doing it. Uh, and we just need to, I need to get that organised. That's, that's probably my job of getting it organised. I've been going around looking at some studios and deciding where we want to go uh, to do the main part of the recording. Yes. And I've, been, I've been hassling a few producers and see if I can find anybody affordable. Uh, if not, it will be a self-production again, uh, which is fine. Uh, I would just, I just quite fancied this this time having some outside influence in the production side, but uh, it's all, it's going to be down to cost at the end of the day, I think. Yes, um, they'll be just you'll yeah. be fascinated with how many people have probably sort of spent the winter trying to get the album out towards the end of the year. You'll be, yeah. saying, oh my God, we've all been doing the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. It's not easy. It's, it's uh, you know, if we were signed to a record label and then money. You know, I'd be in the shop like next week, but we, we, you know, with us all having jobs and having to, you know, to make a living to, to survive, etc. Just uh, getting everybody together and, and booking the studio, and making sure everybody's free, and doing all that sort of stuff. It takes time, but it'll, it'll get there. I'm it's confident. It's funny because I think the March Violets got together for three weeks in America, where one of the members lived, and just bashed yeah. the album. Yeah, well, Tom Tom's lived in America for some time now, so yeah, it's, I mean. It's a nice yeah. little holiday, isn't it? But I, I mean, if they, they play over there, they're going to be struggling at the moment with visas and things if they get caught because it's the, the oh, it's just ridiculous Brexit and 
the visas now to work in America, etc. It's just gone absolutely bonkers. Wow. Okay. It's, so I think it's, it's, yeah, it's really, really difficult and expensive to to sort of play anywhere other than the UK at the minute. So yeah, so I suppose yeah. they're just they're. I think they're just trying to record the album. So um, hopefully they don't. Hopefully they'll got me okay. Well, so that the the, the um, was it made glorious. The sort of best of things seems to have been doing quite well. Yes, so um, it's interesting. So, look, if you were, if you could have whispered something to your like sixteen-year-old self starting out in this interesting world, is there anything that you might have just kind of told that person, even if they ignored it? Um, you know, just a nudge or just a hint or just some worldly advice. No, just to just to enjoy it. I think I wish I did. You know, I didn't not enjoy it. So, um, I think it would. I think it would be. What would it be? It would probably be not to let others influence your thinking so much. And in that, I'm thinking about the fact that Steve was sort of uh, nudged away from the band by by the managers and by by being whispered in his ear, and and we were a little bit manipulated as well in terms of what we were doing by the record company. Um, you know, so it's but but that's you know young and being young and naive more than anything else. Yes. Do you wish you'd say? Yeah. Do you do you wish that you'd done a bit of a Roger Waters and just kept the band going and said that's fine? Yeah, I think I would. I think if 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 we hadn't have had, it's difficult, isn't it? Because it's always ifs and buts. But I guess you know, if Simon Napier Bell hadn't have whispered in Steve's ear and made him think that he could have a solo career. Um, and having read a few autobiographies of people who were working with Sam and Nebula or been working with Sam and Bill, that was his modus operandi. He would get a band and then whisper in the ears of the singer to sort of leave the band. He did it with, with Dave Silverman in Japan, you know, um, it, which was a crazy idea. I don't understand where he was coming from with that. But anyway, that's what he did. So and he did the same with Steve. You know, I think if that hadn't happened and he just stayed with us and we just carried on a bit longer... I think we would have got another record deal and I think we would have carried on and, and been you know, a little bit more successful than we were and built on what we what we what we were building. Yeah. But you know, that's water on the bridge. She used to, to say in hindsight. Um but there were, there were a lot of other factors going on, I guess. So just the way just the way it goes. You know? Yes. Well it's yes, it's always, you know, I suppose it's always nice to sort of just revisit that. And I guess having, you know, the band Mark II, a bit like bad news, wasn't it? Um, yeah. <laughs> does that does that kind of give the narrative of that whole experience a nicer vibe to you, you know, on a spiritual level rather than yeah. just thinking that's a bit of a shame? The, that, you know, the I, I honestly don't think about that that period too much, to be honest. I mean, it, it, I can't not think about it because it's part of the history of the band. And obviously when we play live, we do half and half set. We do half the old songs uh, and and half the new songs, usually. Yes. And and I enjoy playing the old songs, don't get me wrong, I, I really do. But, um, yeah, spirit, I'm, I'm, I'm just, just, just passionate about what I do. And, 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 I, and I want to create, when, when, um, Dave and Giggy came to sort of see me in 2010 just about reforming the band 
You know, the thing I was most excited about wasn't playing live, but it was recording again yes. and, and being creative and making new music. And I, said, and I said to them at the time, as long as we're not just regurgitating our past glories, you know, then I'm in. I want to make new music, new albums and play, play new records and be creative. And that's, and that's what I'm doing now, which is fantastic. And that's what I love doing. So, you know, I can't wait to record the loop and for people to hear it again and then go on to the next one and record the next one and the next one and so on. That's what I really, really enjoy. That's fantastic. That's, it's a good one, isn't it? That's brilliant. You know, I just love that. I know. Yeah. Because, you know, and it's just great that obviously something's happening because so many bands are doing the same. And I think it is always, I think you're right, you know, exactly. No one wants to just go and play the old hits from 40 years ago. They just think, actually, I'd rather just write something new because I don't want to have to, I can't remember how to play the old hits. <laughs> I sometimes do have to look at that, look back and go, how did I play that again? I can't play it like that. It was too hard. <laughs> yes. Looking back at some of the old guitar no, I didn't play it like that. I must have played it another way, yeah. But, yes. yeah, no, I mean, it's, yeah. I get it. I get I get that some people want to just go and listen to Heaven is Waiting or listen to the seduction and, and they'd be go along to a gig and they're happy to just hear a band play that. But we couldn't even do that anyway because we haven't got Steve that's singing it. So, you know, it's it's never going to be exactly the same. And it, it would be just boring for me, you know. Yeah. Playing playing the same old songs, you know, 40 years on again and again and again. But some bands do that. I can name a few bands who actually do that. Um, but yeah, it's not for me. You know, the, the joy come for me comes from creating something new and playing something new and, and being excited like we were back in the 80s, you yes. know, when we made a song and, and recorded it and we're waiting for it to come out and then we could play it live. And, you know, that was the excitement. That was the, the magic part of it. And that still is. Still is the magic part of it for me. This is good. It's, uh, it's getting those new tracks out there. I can't wait for people to hear them. Yes, well, this is good. This is, well, thank you ever so much, Paul, for this. This has been amazing. If you want, I can, when I put it out, I can always send you, a, you know, a link so you can use oh, it. Oh, please do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, absolutely, yeah. that would be great. But yes, thanks a lot and all the best. And I really hope, yes, you get the studio time and get the album out. And um, yes, will. and then we you will. can do a, a mini tour at Christmas. God. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're promoting the album. Absolutely. We'll do yes. it through it, yeah, but towards the end of the year for sure. And did you ever? But thank you, David. I really, really appreciate that. It was a good, good chat. Yes, well, that very thanks much. a lot. Well, look, have a great <laughs> week and um, enjoy the wind and sun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, David, take, take care. Yourself. See you thank later. You. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye. And that, dear listener. It's the end of the interview. You probably gathered that. Anyway, a massive thank you to Paul Nash for giving me the time for that interview um, from the Dance Society. Like I said, there's a very good website, which has all the information. Just go there, dancesociety.com. This has been the C86 Show, David E. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.